I think <laughs> investors are two things, and that is cheap and that is lazy. And they are the lazy in the sense of you have to show them, you can't tell them, and they are cheap in terms of like they will always go for the lowest number. Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Value Add Pod. My name is Mash, and I interview some of the smartest venture capital funds to learn how they support their founders post investment. I have with me today Abby Strabala from True World Ventures. What a delightful person to have as my first guest. I was very nervous when I shot this first episode with her months ago, and I'm so happy I finally get to publish the episode. Abby is an associate at True Ventures, which is a women-led VC fund that invests in women-led companies. Have a fantastic time listening to it because I know I had a blast recording it. Okay, three, two, one. Abby, super happy to have you on the pod. Um, when we last chatted and we were, when we were preparing for this podcast, I realized you'd be the perfect first guest because you're a super, very welcoming, very warm personality and you're very genuine with your thoughts. So welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and to chat about all things VC and platform. Amazing. So, you know, just so we can get the audience as excited as I am to have you on the pod, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're working on. Yeah, well, hi, audience. Uh, I'm Abby Strabla. I'm an associate at True Wealth Ventures. At True Wealth, we do seed stage investing in women-led companies improving human or environmental health. And I think we'll go down and talk about that a little bit more. Um, who I am, you know, I'm based in San Francisco. I have been, I started investing kind of right at the start of the pandemic. Uh, so a hype cycle investor. And, you know, it's it's been an interesting ride of kind of navigating what this career looks like long term. You know, venture is an interesting industry of there aren't really clear linear paths for career growth. So figuring it out, kind of building the engine as you drive is the name of the game. Yeah, I, I think when when I first got in touch with you, Abby, one of the reasons I was super interested in what you're doing, I feel that, you know, you've been very committed to the cause of helping female entrepreneurs and LGBTQ plus entrepreneurs from a super, super early stage in your career, right? And it stayed consistent throughout. So what got me thinking, you know, what's your why? And what drove you to care so much about these causes that today you're doing so much to support them? Very curious. I think... I think my mom, uh, she gets a lot of credit. My mom was always, you know, she's a stay-at-home mom and just always involved in philanthropy and volunteer work. And she was, you know, I'm the black sheep of my family that doesn't work for the U.S. government. And so, you know, I think that she was, she just instilled this need of like, whatever you do in life, it has to be mission aligned. Like you have to believe in what you're doing. And I think I really carried that throughout my career. You know, I started in nonprofits here in San Francisco in the advocacy space for LGBTQ plus mm -hmm. kind of civil rights and non nonprofits. And then, you know, as I was trying to figure out like, what do I want to do with my life? What problems do I want to solve? I wanted to make money because San Francisco is expensive and nonprofits <laughs> don't pay a lot. So I knew that I wanted something in the private sector, but I, I didn't want to lose that mission alignment and that passion for what you do. Um, so then I kind of got exposed to impact investing and actually found my way into venture via contraception. Mm -hmm. which, you know, I was on my own personal exploration of a woman in her 20s in California, figuring out what method to use, what's going to work the best for my body and for my lifestyle, and found that there was actually really little innovation happening in that space, you know, it, despite the fact that it had been over 20 years since a new type of contraceptive had hit the market, like there wasn't a lot of innovation. 
So that's what kind of got me into investing as I found an organization that was paying attention to a space that nobody else was in women's health, really focused on contraceptive innovation and maternal health, which was ReAventures at the time a nonprofit working with foundations to align their endowments with their missions and their programmatic investing, which turned into a venture fund, a $40 million venture fund called RH Capital investing exclusively in women's health. So that was kind of my, my pathway here. And then as you're in venture, you know, as a woman, the industry is 80% men. And then you look at the funding that goes to founders and overwhelmingly, you know, 70 plus percent of the funding in the industry goes to all male teams. And so, you know, if you follow the numbers long enough, it's really not that much of a surprise that the types of innovations getting fun VC funding and seeing that kind of mass commercialization aren't necessarily solving the problems for, you know, 51% of the population. Yeah. You know, that actually blows my mind, Abby, and I, and I truly mean that because so obviously as, as, a, as a male, I don't see that perspective. I, I never even thought about it. And hearing that, you know, women make 80% of consumer purchases and healthcare decisions, you know, where, you know, where exactly in the startup ecosystem then are they most prevalent versus not? And when I looked at True Well Ventures, which where you're working now, it's very fascinating to see that you're supporting female entrepreneurs and that's your core focus. It's truly a very daunting statistic that 80% of decisions are made by them, yet they're not the ones cutting the checks most of the time, right? Um, and another yeah. fact, which again, just I'm still observing, is that most of the funding goes to all male teams. And again, being very candid, as a man, when I see that, when you tell me the stat, I go, oh, really? Hmm. But when I see a startup team with like a full tech team, product team, everyone's everyone's a guy, I look at that and I say, oh yeah, that's normal because that's what I'm used to, right? So it's it's very interesting. I'm kind of having a bit of a cognitive dissonance right now. So yeah, thank you for bringing that uh, statistic to light. Um, and speaking of VC, Abby, my understanding is you've been both on the investment side of a venture capital firm as well as the platform side, right? Um, and being in emerging funds, my understanding is from our last conversation that there's not much of key differences between the two because technically everyone's doing everything. But kind of curious that, you know, in your eyes, Abby, what's unique about the investment role and the platform role? And if there's an up and coming VC associate listening to this pod now, what advice would you have for her to kind of thrive in these individual roles? Because um, I think you have some good insights there. Yeah. So I've I've spent my whole career kind of at these emerging funds, you know, less than 100 million in assets under management, really small teams. You know, my current team is three. When I joined RH Capital, there were three of us, grew to five. So, you know, in terms of how I think about platform, I think of platform as like the catch-all phrase for non-investment roles. And mm -hmm. at emerging firms and, you know, just in my experience, you know, at a small firm, you don't have the capital to hire a platform person. That's just not in your 2% management fee budget um, <laughs> on a small fund. It's just the math doesn't work. Yeah. So what ends up happening is everybody does everything. So what I learned really early on in my career, you know, I kind of started in finance and ops and just build out the infrastructure of a fund. Like, what does it take to run a fund? You know, like, what are, how do you get LPs to give you money to invest in a fund? What kind of infrastructure should you be thinking about? How do you run an audit? 
um, in addition to some of those traditional platform pieces that I think mostly people talk about in terms of portfolio support, right? Which to me is a whole other bucket of platform Mm -hmm. of like that marketing support, that like fractional CFO, you know, we've seen other firms kind of start to pull together like mental health resources and different things. And I think from the firm perspective, it's important to recognize as a firm where your value add is going to be to entrepreneurs. And I think that Mm. that is something that we've thought a lot about at True Wealth Ventures of given the size of the team, our capabilities and expertise, where can we really play an impactful role? And where is it better for us to just, you know, refer out, find find an incredible consultant to partner with these startups? In terms of advice for people who are kind of navigating and figuring it out, I both pieces are incredibly important for me to for you to be a successful investor. I don't think you can be a successful investor if you don't understand the dynamics of a fund and how it works or be able to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty and help a portfolio company with a financial model. You know, I you have to be able to do both because both are important and both are going to help drive your portfolio companies to grow and be stronger. Oh, that sounds like a lot of work. And my thought process is there is some things you can obviously learn on the job. There is other things that you can learn on the job, but you're kind of expected to know from beforehand. Um, so in your case, Abby, like for example, the financial modeling piece, did you already have that expertise going into the VC space or is that something you picked up? Cause that's, that's, that's not, that's not a simple thing to figure out. It is not simple. No, I learned it in the industry and I'll, I'll add a plug for Zach who taught me how there's this incredible consultant. He's like a VC guru, guru. His name is Zach. He's a partner at GV now, um, but he taught me financial modeling and he does these cohorts with other associates. So like, you know, once you're in the industry, I I think there's a lot of this preconceived notions that you need this specific expertise and background to be successful in venture, like going to IB banking or, you know, go study at Harvard or Stanford, which 40% of the industry has done. But I think that there's this, you know, there, there is the skills, but I think the harder skills that you can't really teach is people. How do you deal with people? That kind of human interaction Mm -hmm. is so crucial to this industry. And a lot of it, I mean, I go to board meetings, I I talk to a lot of our portfolio founders and 90% of the problems that exist at a startup are communication problems. Interesting. And so that that is a fundamental piece that you can't really learn on the job. You have to come in with that skill. But the rest of it, the financial modeling, kind of the tactical things, I'm like, those are learnable or you can decide like, hey, this isn't this isn't my value add. This isn't where I can support and be an important aspect of the business to help grow it. So I think like kind of that that self-awareness of recognizing where you should play and where you shouldn't is really Uh important. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I, I think you're very good at, Abby, is basically being a sponge and, you know, learning, taking on the additional responsibility and really pushing the needle to help people that you're uh, working with. And I think the way you've positioned it now where, yeah, there's a few tactical things that you can learn, maybe, maybe not, depending on how you want to know what's your value add, but then also learning to handle people. And I think that's a very, it's a very underrated recommendation slash um, advice. Because I, I think most people don't realize the importance of good communication until they realize that's what's missing. And then it's, you, you can't just read a book on communication. It, it takes time to build um, years, actually. And yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. 
that's that's a great point. I was just talking to my uncle about this two weeks ago, so it really clicks in yeah, my mind. Stru structured thinking. Barbara Mento has this like guiding principle book. She was kind of one of the first like senior women at McKinsey and has this incredible book that you can buy. Um, and she just kind of teaches the McK what is now like the McKinsey principle of just how do you structure your thoughts in a way that people will understand, which like written communication is like a whole can of worms. But then there's also like that emotional intelligence piece too, of like, how do you know when to push a founder? when they still have more to give or how do you know when you need to back off and give them time to process like they're you know they're a lot of, so much of this is just dynamics and personalities i mean you look at an average board well who, who's on the board people at the end of the day it's all all people focused um one of the vcs that i know who's raising a vertical SaaS fund out of austin nick tipman he recommended a book to me called what they don't teach you at harvard so i bought the book read one chapter it's the entire theme of the book, Abby, is literally EQ, right? Like kn knowing how to read the room, knowing how to judge a person based on how they play golf. Not literally all the time, but it's these little things that you have to pick up to really understand how a person thinks about whether they're generous, why they should be this, why they shouldn't be that, right? Um, and I was able to marry a few of those components to things I've had to learn in my life. Um, but, you know, that's a story for another time. Venture, venture is, it's dating. Right. Like it's huh. their long term, their long term relationships. You know, your, your average commitment is like 10. You're looking at a 10 year long relationship. Right. So a lot of it is figuring out like, OK, who do I want to hang out with and know and call for 10 years? So, yeah, like get it, getting to the point quickly is really important. A quick no yeah, is really a blessing. I, I see that with, you know, VCs and founders and also the other relationships that you have to build out, I guess, when you're working at a VC fund and which brings us to what you're doing at True Wealth. So I like True Wealth for many reasons, don't wanna spoil the surprise, but tell us, Abby, a little bit about what True Wealth does, the kinds of founders and entrepreneurs that you invest in at True Wealth Ventures. And later on, we'll dig into the platform functions and or how you support your founders today. Awesome. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, so we do seed stage investing in women-led companies in the human and environmental health space. So that's kind of broader niche, depending on where you come from. And I think a big part of kind of our differentiation as a firm is we're women-led. Um, you know, our two GPs are women. They've been in this industry for 20 plus years. And I think that there, there's this inherent kind of trust and understanding that gets built when you're looking across the room between a found, with a founder and an investor where they just get you, where they just understand you. They look like you. And that play, you know, representation matters. We talk a lot about that in, in venture and how, you know, it hasn't been quite reflected, but just being able to show up to a meeting and talk about menstrual blood or pregnancy mm. or birth and labor and delivery and not feel the need to explain what that is, what that feels like and kind of justify the product, service, or solution that you're building, I think is incredibly powerful. powerful you know, yeah. I'm, I'm able to dig into the, the nuts and bolts of the business while a lot of, you know, what I hear from a lot of our founders is, well, we have to explain so much just to get an investor to understand the market opportunity here, especially yeah. in women's health, you know, because these, and, you know, to their credit, like, yeah, they don't know, like, you'd have to sell me really hard on an erectile dysfunction medication because I don't know that experience, right? But like in, in women's health, you know, and especially for 
women tend to solve problems that they experience in their lives, right? Making 80% of consumer purchase decisions, <laughs> 85% of healthcare decisions. So a lot of those founders are solving problems that are really specialized to things that other women experience or that women will have the largest influence on. And so I think, you know, for us as a firm, being able to have that connection pretty quickly is really critical to us being able to be a value add and to really get into the business. And then after investment, you know, we've been in the industry for a while. Our two GPs are based in Austin, which I think is also incredibly cool because there's this whole ecosystem outside of San Francisco and New York that is thriving and that has a lot of capital and a lot of really cool innovation and scrappy founders, right? Like we in, venture, in Silicon Valley, I feel like the big hoo-ha of it all is like, well, how much did you raise? And I feel like <laughs> in the Midwest, it's like, what did you build? And so there is some of that like tension of just, you know, capital is abundant in the Bay and in New York, and it's not in other places, which again, puts those fundamentals less on the headlines, less on the personality of the founder and more around what is the business, right? How are we making money? How are we building solutions and services which are really gonna benefit and have a large scale impact on the communities that we're trying to serve? There's a lot of great points in what you just said. And, you know, go, again, going back to the first point with representation, it's not something being very candid with you, Abby, it's not something that clicked with me until <sighs> I listened to the all in pod and, you know, Chamat's the only brown dude on the pod. I love every member of the pod, but then there's Chamat. I see him, you know, a part of me actually gets excited thinking, oh, this dude started from they had to, I, I believe, you know, come from another country. And then he, had, he was working at Burger King. Now he's literally a VC, right? And, but he didn't become that because of luck only, like he put in a lot of hard work. And I see that. And even over a video, seeing him talk about political topics or startups, et cetera, gets me excited. So I can only imagine how much more powerful it might feel for a female entrepreneur who's been putting in her blood, sweat and tears and building a company. And she gets, gets into a room with VCs, like the ones at your True World Ventures, and they just get it because they have felt the same problems, they understand it, and they don't need that additional 20, 30 minute dialogue to give them the context, right? Yeah. Really, really And then really there's cool. also like those, you know, I think there's a lot of, as we've, you know, seen and it's been reported on, there's a lot of just kind of like bullshit questions that women get asked that men would never, right? <laughs> so like, you know, how do you do, are you, do you have kids? Do you, how are you growing a business with children? You know, and so there are like there, those those tensions, right? Where if you don't have to explain it, if you don't have to justify like what you're doing and why, you can really get to the root of the business. Which again, like we're venture capitalists, we are investing in the business. Like uh -huh. that, we're here for profits and return, um, not kind of the bullshit. Like, oh, how does this work? That's fascinating. Again, I didn't know that. Wow, lots of learning points for myself and the audience. So thank you for that, Abby. Let's jump into the core of the questions that I want to ask you today around platform, right? You know, platform's been under fire recently. Um, from what up, from my understanding, you know, startups want to always cut marketing whenever there is a decline in economic conditions, et cetera. And I imagine in platform, it's kind of the same. And correct me if I'm wrong, where Oh, do we, what's our real value add? You know, what are our services that founders have used versus not used? What are these seven other services they haven't used it in the last six months? Do we really need to spend that five, six figures? Let's just get rid of it and 
do realign our incentives there, right? Or realign our finances. So talk to me, Abby, about how you see or how you've seen platform evolve over the last three to five years. And then would be very curious to learn about how you're supporting entrepreneurs within the True Wealth Ventures uh, ecosystem as well. Yeah. Um, so I think like in, in general, like VC mm -hmm. exploded in the last two years, right? Like we, we look at the 2020, 21 numbers and like things just got insane. Like capital was cheap. Fund sizes were massively large. And, you know, like uh, from the VC's perspective, your management fees and revenue is fixed. You know, you're getting 2% of your AUM. And then it's a step down depending on where you are in your fund cycle. And so I think that when capital was abundant, there was this strong emphasis on, okay, well, what additional non-investment support, like, what does that look like at a firm? And that also helps from the firm's perspective, like, that's your differentiation. If you can, if, you know, a founder's trying to decide between two term sheets and one firm has, you know, take like an A16, has like this whole mm -hmm. marketing support engine and like all these other, you know, fractional CFOs, all these add-on services, and the other firm doesn't, well, as a startup, you know, you might be more inclined to go for the the full wraparound support and services. But I think something that has happened, you know, in 2023 in a less free capital, capital constrained environment, higher interest rates, people are starting to question, well, is that really the value add? Like, are we tracking this? Are people using it? And I think that those are important questions. And I think that, you know, mm -hmm. if though if you're trying to offer platform services, you have to be really intentional about the why. Like who who are you offering these for? Is there consistent demand? And is does this work for your investment strategy and your portfolio? I mean, if you're a generalist, it might not make sense to have a marketing person because the marketing needs of your entire portfolio are going to be so different. But if you're a healthcare investor investing in hardware and med devices, well, a specialized mm -hmm. marketing person who deeply understands how to sell into healthcare systems, that's incredibly valuable. So I think a lot of it is figuring out, like, as a firm, given our investment strategy and given all the other things that we're doing, A, can we afford this? And B, like, what does success look like? And how are we going to measure and track this over time to ensure that it's valuable to us as a firm? You know, like, mm -hmm. does this lead to increased valuations, extra rounds, maybe earlier acquisitions, faster contracts than industry average, especially in healthcare? Or is it just this nice to have thing that like markets really well that we like to talk about? And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, the industry didn't have a lot of discipline around it historically. And now we're starting to see like, okay, actually, maybe we should track this and make sure that this is actually valuable. That's, that makes a lot of sense, especially the first piece, which again, just slowly clicking in my mind now is aligning it to the actual needs of the startups. You know, having, if you're a gen, like, like you said, generalist team, does it make sense of a marketing person? But if you're a healthcare VC, having a person, fractional or not, to kind of come in and talk to founders around how they can sell into the healthcare business, like that's, that has astronomically higher value than just having a service that's a nice to have. Great point there. And it also makes sense because I did see, forget what the company is, but I did see a few graphs from two to three years ago where every, all the graphs were up. Lots of money, lots of gunpowder ready to be deployed, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas now everyone's being very, not stingy, that's not the right word, but everyone's being hyper careful. Um, so 
makes sense that it that it automatically extends to the platform capabilities as well. And speaking of platform, you know, for the founders within the true world ecosystem, would you say that there's one or two things that you believe you excel at in helping founders get better direction at, for example, fundraising, anything of that sort? Yeah, you know, I think fundraising is kind of our our specialty in terms mm. of support, you know, just given given time in, you know, VC is very much a how many years in, you know, you just you build up knowledge accumulates over time and it compounds. And same thing with network, right? The more investors, you know, the more resources you're going to have so that when your portfolio company is ready to raise their series A, you can go to your CRM and download a report of, okay, who does, who's everybody I know who is invests in series A and is interested in say environmental solutions. And then you go through that list again and can math out the average check size. Cause again, we all do intro calls. We all know what other firms are up to. Like that's, <laughs> you know, probably 10%, 15% of my time is just doing intro calls with people at other firms and building those relationships to send deals to. Yeah. And so you're able to kind of cultivate that on behalf of your portfolio and whether that's for existing ones with their future rounds or filling out investor syndicates, you know, for a deal I did in the maternal health space earlier this year, you know, I talked to everybody who came on the cap table, which was like obscene, <laughs> but it was, you know, again, like I think stingy is the correct word for investors. I think <laughs> investors are two things and that is cheap and that is lazy. And they are lazy in the sense of you have to show them, you can't tell them. And they are cheap in terms of like, they will always go for the lowest number, right? We don't pay for conferences. We hate increased valuations. If we're writing the term sheet, like we're constantly aware of those things because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the math has to work, right? And the better deal you get coming in, the better your ROI is going to be on the outside. Make That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess... You know, maybe zooming out a little bit, given that you've worked at emerging funds quite a lot, what are, you know, what are some recommendations, Abby, from your side that you think can help fund managers better support their portfolio? Just primarily focusing on emerging funds and, you know, smaller funds or smaller VC teams, perhaps. What are some things they can do differently to better understand what their founders need and supporting them in the long run through their journey of building a unicorn or a big company? I think a big one is just encouraging founders to ask questions about the firm. Like as we're doing diligence mm -hmm. on companies, I don't think enough founders do diligence on the firms. Um, and I think a lot of that might stem from a lot of founders just don't know how funds work. And mm -hmm. I think that that's really important. You know, like I frequently talk to all of my portfolio companies and like, give them the overview and the spiel of like, well, this is our incentive structure. This is how we make money. This is what we're looking for. This is how we think about portfolio construction. This is how much we're reserving for follow-ons. At what rounds, at what pace. This is where we are in our investment deployment schedule. This is when we're gonna raise our next fund. You know, kind of some of those like fundamentals on how does the fund operate, I think is so undervalued and underknowledged across the industry. And for founders, like you need to know those things because these people are on your cap table and they're going to be on your cap table for a long time. And if they're incentive, you need to know what their incentives are looking like in the long term. And, you know, say they're on fund three and haven't had any returns yet. Well, they're going to probably be pressuring you a lot more to get an earlier exit. 
right? So like understanding yeah. kind of where firms are coming from and how they operate internally, I think is incredibly valuable. And not enough people ask those questions. You know, in every email I send to a founder with our questions, I say, and please let me know if you have any questions for us. And nobody ever sends me anything. That's kind of interesting, Abby. The book that I'm reading right now is called Secrets of Sandhill Road. It's mm -hmm. written by, I don't know if it's a GP, but he's a he was or is a partner at Anderson Horowitz. And he talks about literally what you just said, right? Understanding the incentives of a fund and how LPs work, what the relationship is, what's a carry. And I'm very, very happy you mentioned the word pressured, right? Like if they haven't had an exit in a long, long time, or if their fund's in their seventh or eighth year, and the most of the companies they invested in aren't really doing too well, what? how do you think the relationship with you now that they're investing in you as a startup will go? You know, and it's not because they're tough people or bad people. It's just the money. It's just the business. It's just how things work. And if you don't, as a founder, understand these incentives from the get-go, there will be miscommunication down the line, right? And hearing you say that, working in VC just, you know, just resonates very well with me. So that's a great, great point that you brought up. And I think, Abby, the reason some, so I'm a founder, right? I think the reason some founders are a bit hesitant <laughs> to ask questions, because I think it's a bit intimidating, right? When you're talking to the person or an entity who can give you funding. And if you really, really, really need that funding to stay afloat, I think personally, very candidly, one anxiety that I would have is, well, I don't want to ask too many questions and come off as too arrogant, or I don't want to come off as, you know, ask too many questions and, you know, uns unsettle something. I, I just want things to go smoothly. And I think that <laughs> that anxiety would stop me from asking any questions at all personally. That's what I think. I think that that happens all the time, yeah. but I want to, I want to challenge people of like, how many questions am I asking you? Mm -hmm. Like that, the, the power, like I hear you on the power dynamic. It can be uncomfortable, right? I have money. You need money. You want the money that I have. Like that creates this weird dynamic already from the get go. But again, like these are partnerships and if you. Sure don't have that, if you can't get comfortable doing that, well, how on earth are you gonna be able to call up this investor when shit hits the fan? <laughs> when things are not going well, right? Like this, you're, the whole point of investors and VCs, like that's your phone call. You know, like you're in jail, who's the one person you call? Like that's supposed to be your investor, <laughs> right? Like I'm here to help you. Your success, your wins and failures are my wins and failures. And so I think setting that precedent from the get-go and obviously like VCs have to kind of lead the tone of that. Like, I'm sure some of them would not be responsive if people started asking questions. But honestly, if an investor pushes back on basic questions just about how they're running their organization and where they're at on their fund cycle and things like that, well, then that's probably not a partner you want on your cap table for 10 years. Yeah, it's almost like reverse due diligence. <laughs> a little, I mean, it should, diligence goes both ways. And I, yeah. I don't think that that is nearly as common in the industry as it should be, right? Like only a yeah. handful of companies that I've ever talked to have asked to talk to other portfolio company founders. I was going to say this earlier is that, you know, one thing, if, if I was raising, what I would do is I would first of all try. So, you know, the, the rule of running a network or building a happy, good network is to make, is to kind of double check a person's reputation with other people that they know, supposedly know, or have worked with in the past. And so that applies to, if I was a founder, I would talk to the partners of the VCs and I would, again, do that mathematics to see, okay, someone knows Abby, let me talk to that someone and see how Abby 
what what her vibe is you know is she pushy is she, does she give space does she help ask questions what what do people say about Abby? But then I would take it a step further and I would 100% talk to the other portfolio companies, especially the ones who raise in A, a similar climate, or B, are in the same kind of industry and or have the same team formations. I don't want to talk to a startup with 50 people if I'm just three people. I want to talk to startups that have less than five or seven people because they understand my pains and we're probably on the same wavelength in terms of challenges, issues, and runway even, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I personally learned a lot from not just around your industry and you know how you work with founders etc but how you consolidated everything and you know there was a lot of bullet points as well as a lot of connecting factors across all of these how do you want to close up the pod you know i know you have a lot of wisdom to share but if there was one thing that you could close off the pod with what would that be I think it's that, you know, the capital and VC as an industry at large is desperate for new perspectives, right? We, we've seen historically the same, the same people who give money funding people who look like them funding problems that exist within those communities. And there's this like entire untapped market of under historically underrepresented founders and problem solvers that have, have yet to be determined, right? So I think. If you have a perspective or a worldview that you think is unique and differentiated, well, think about investing. Think about getting involved in the VC ecosystem. Think about starting a company because we're desperate for those types of solutions. And there's a lot of unmet potential and need in those segments. That's awesome. And if any of the listeners want to get in touch with Abby, I'll include her details um, in the chat below so you can add her on LinkedIn and have a wonderful conversation. Um, Abby, this was super fun. I'm very happy you're our first guest on the pod and thank you so much for coming on. Me too. This was loads of fun. Always happy to chat. Now that was a fun episode. If you want to reach out to Abby, her LinkedIn will be in the show notes below and keep an eye out for future episodes on the value add pod.